What is going on, Breakthrough Success listeners? Mark Aberti here, and we have a powerful episode of Perseverance. This is going to be one of the most powerful Breakthrough Success episodes. I'm saying that before we go into it because our guests, I mean, you'll understand when I go through the intro. He's been blind since birth, but despite that, he's gone on to bike. He's worked out advanced math problems in his head, and he's worked at several high-tech companies for over 30 years. And like many of us, his life was changed on September 11th, but on that day, he was on the 78th floor of Tower One during the attack and managed to escape with the help of his guide dog moments before the tower collapsed. He went on after that to serve at multiple nonprofit organizations aimed at training guide dogs and helping blind students live out their dreams. His book, Thunderdog, captures his journey and has sold over 2.5 million copies. I think this is going to be a very powerful episode, very powerful story on perseverance. And our guest who joins us is none other than Mike Hingson. Mike. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. It is a pleasure to have you on Breakthrough Success. And it is amazing how the same thing can happen to two different people. One person will become very successful, the other not as much. And being blind since birth, that a lot of people would see that as an obstacle, something they couldn't really get through. But you biked, you did all these different things as if you weren't blind. And during one of the saddest days of history, you were able to make it out. So how did you not use, how did you not permit yourself to view the blindness as a crux and rather integrate yourself and do all these different things? Well, let's go back to when I was born. I don't really remember it, but I've heard details. The doctors, when it was discovered that I was blind, told my parents that they should put me in a home because no blind child could ever grow up to amount to anything in society. Well, my parents disagreed with the learned medical profession in Chicago, Illinois, and they said, we're going to take him home and he can do whatever he chooses. Of course, it doesn't matter that he's blind. And I grew up with that philosophy and adopted that mindset. See, the problem really isn't blindness. The problem is how people view blindness, primarily people who are not blind, who have never even tried it. But the reality is that blind people can do the same things that everyone else can do. In fact, their brains don't even work differently, although there are some so-called professionals in the field who think that they do. But we have brains, we have lives, loves, attitudes, thoughts, and everything else the same way anyone who is sighted has. The difference is we don't use our eyesight to do the same things that you do with your eyesight. So we have to use alternative techniques. And typically, society has not been very inclusive of that. So in reality, into the 50s and 60s and 70s, and even into the year 2000 and today, most people think that blind people really can't do a lot. And that's the barrier that I face. So 
most blind people, when they apply for jobs, people say, well, how are you going to get to work every day? Even if we made it to be able to have a job interview, um, people still say, and they've said to me in the past, well, how are you going to get to work? Well, I got here, didn't I? Mm. And I got here all by myself. Blindness isn't what is going to stand in my way. And I, of course, I can't say to an interviewer directly, you're the one that's going to stand in the way if you ask those kinds of questions. And my favorite story, <clears throat> excuse me, is once I did apply for a job <clears throat> back in 1989, and I debated about what to put in the cover letter for my resume, and my wife and I talked about it, and she said, you know, in 1979, you took the Dale Carnegie sales course. What's the most important thing you said you learned from that course? Well, she, like wives often are, was ahead of me. What she finally said is, look, you said always that the most important thing you learned from the sales course was turn perceived liabilities into assets. And of course, mm -hmm. the little light went off and I went and wrote a cover letter. And the last two paragraphs of my cover letter said, the most important thing that you need to know about me when you're considering me for this interview is that I'm blind. The reason that's important is because as a blind person, I've had to sell all my life just to be able to function. It was a sales job. I've had to sell to convince people to let me take my guide dog on an airplane. It was prior to the Americans with Disabilities Act and just about the time the Air Carrier Access Act passed. I've had to convince people through sales to let me buy a house or take my dog into grocery stores or just go there myself. So when you're hiring someone for this job, do you wanna hire somebody who just works for eight or 10 hours a day selling? Or do you wanna hire somebody who sells for 24 hours a day and truly understands sales for the science and art that it is. Well, I got the interview and I got the job. <clears throat> it's about mindset. And the reality is blindness isn't the problem. And all too often blind people themselves don't learn that. But for those who do, we tend to be able to confront a lot of the issues more directly. And oftentimes we can break through that ceiling that exists. And it's interesting hearing Mike's story when you have some type of condition and you are of the mindset of turning the perceived liability into an asset. There are ways that you live life differently. Like how Mike mentioned, some people they sell for their job, but Mike's selling 24 hours a day and that gives him a really big strength just that ability to communicate with people say that his dog has to be in the store and it's all about how you view the different things that happen in life and i do want to talk about how now you've gone on to really be someone who helps blind students live out their dreams you're helping with training guide dogs i'm wondering did this hit the next level after your experience in tower one or were you doing this stuff before that experience well i suppose to some degree doing a little of it before but mostly it has occurred afterward i've always wanted to teach and be a teacher in fact i have a secondary teaching credential um, <clears throat> first of all, along the way, I discovered that you and every person who is sighted has a condition. The only thing is you don't recognize it and there's a reason for it. The condition that you have is that you're light dependent. You can't do anything unless there are lights. And the reason you're successful is that Thomas Edison and others invented the electric light bulb, which 
as the Americans with Disabilities Act would say for you light dependent disabled people, the light bulb is a reasonable accommodation to help you function in the dark. Why is that different than the fact that I don't have a problem functioning in the dark, but I do have a challenge accessing other materials because the technology isn't necessarily automatically provided for me to do that. Um, we provide electric lights for every sighted person in an office. We provide so many other accommodations, but we don't think far enough ahead to think that maybe there are those that don't need some of those accommodations and we need to provide something different. And that is what I try to impart to blind people and to sighted people alike. And since the World Trade Center terrorist attacks for the past 19 years almost, I have been a full-time public speaker traveling the world, talking about teamwork and trust, reasonable accommodations, talking about perseverance and survival, thinking outside the box and sometimes inside your toolbox because you may already have the tools to do things that you don't think you do. Um, and in reality, one of the things that I'm getting ready to start to do is go in a, a slightly different direction as well, which is we live in a, an environment today where there is so much fear because of the COVID-19 pandemic and other things as well. So I am looking to begin to start a coaching process to help people learn how to deal with that fear. Because if my story of September 11th means anything, it is that I developed a mindset and there were reasons for it that helped me not be afraid when the towers were struck. I didn't directly know what was happening, but you know what? No one in my office and no one on my side of the building knew what was happening. We figured out along the way that an airplane must have hit the building because we began smelling jet fuel, but we had no idea what was really going on. But I had learned in my own mind and had developed a mindset to deal with emergencies. So as we got people in my office out, a colleague of mine, David Frank, got some guests out that we had in the office that day and then we went to the stairs. David Roselle and I went to the stairs and we started down. I was able to stay focused and not be afraid of what was possibly going on, whatever it was. And then later as we were running away from Tower 1 when it was collapsing, I think that was, excuse me, Tower 2. Um, that was the first building to collapse and we were about 100 yards away. That was probably the time that I came closest to really being afraid. But even then, I focused and I was able to do what I needed to do to survive and help others survive. It's a mindset. And so I want to start to teach people in general how they can adopt some of this mindset and how they can learn to control some of their fears. So we're really looking forward to starting that process. And focus is definitely uh, something you want to develop. It's very important to be locked into goals that you're locked in on and not get distracted, not get paralyzed by fear. Right. What kept you focused? Like I, I've, I've asked this question to some other people and they say like, you know, it was either like you had, you were focused or like you aren't making it. There was no other option, but I'm wondering what was some of the thoughts in your head and just ways that you didn't let the noises you heard of 
the events take you away from just staying calm and staying focused and getting out of there? As I talk about in Thunderdog, um, the book that you mentioned earlier, and, and I didn't really learn to articulate this until well after September 11th, but what I had truly learned to do was to focus on what I could focus on, control what I could. We had no control over September 11th happening, and I, and I firmly believe that we would not have been able to, as a country, figure that out. It was something that just was kept quiet enough that we wouldn't have been able to do that. But at the same time, um, while we couldn't control that, we do have the ability to control our own mindset. We didn't have control over necessarily what occurred to us, but I had kind of learned along the way just in my life to focus on the things that I could. And so as we were going down the stairs, I guarantee you, no matter what was going on, I was listening for any kind of strange sounds that might have indicated that that the building was going to collapse or something was happening or there was some sort of crisis brewing somewhere on the stairwell. <clears throat> but at the same time, I also knew that if something happened I don't, and I didn't have control over it, I could only deal with what I could. So the other part of it is, and there were a few times that it happened that people near us on the stairs began to panic. And I and others helped them recenter their focus and regain some composure. And so we all were able to go down the stairs. And nothing did happen on the stairs to really cause us gross concern. We met firefighters coming up the stairs at about the 30th floor and they wouldn't tell us what was happening. So we still really didn't know, but we did smell jet fuel. So we made the assumption that somehow an airplane had been involved in hitting the building. But again, it was all about focus. And that is something that we need to learn to do. When I was riding a bike, I had to really focus uh, because while I could hear cars coming and move to the side of the street, if I were in the middle of the street, and our house where we, where I rode the bike and where I grew up in Palmdale, California was pretty rural at the time. I couldn't um, as easily hear parked cars on the side of the street, right? Because the engines aren't going. But I could hear them and I learned how to hear where they were by the noises the bike tires made and other echoes that gave me the information that there were cars around that, that I had to avoid. <clears throat> and I learned other techniques that helped me successfully ride a bike and successfully travel around. And I learned that I could do all that stuff as well as anyone else. And you want to talk about a daunting experience. My first job out of college had me on one Sunday afternoon fly from California to Boston, Massachusetts, where I was going to spend several months uh, beginning to work with the company and preparing to do what I needed to do. I had never been to Massachusetts before. I had never been more than 100 miles away from home before. 100 miles was when I was at University of California at Irvine going to school. But you know what? Um, I got on that airplane and I was a little worried about what's going to happen when I get there and all that. And I went through scenarios as, um, is the apartment that supposedly had been rented for me going to be available and all that, things like everyone does. But it all worked out. And I got to Boston and found the apartment, got all settled, started to learn the area, and uh, did all the other things that I needed to do, and ended up spending several years in Massachusetts, then going to work for 
um, another company associated with the project that originally took me there. <clears throat> it's again about mindset. You can be afraid and there is some value in recognizing that fear is part of our lives in a sense, but there is a lot more value in learning to control fear. And, and so that's what I'm excited to start to work on. I mean, it's just really awesome the, how your work has evolved and there's just so much inspiration because we're all fighting our different battles, but yeah. to hear about what battles have been overcome by people like Mike and to hear the biking story, <clears throat> it just shows that if you just really focus on something and instead of saying, oh, poor me, I've been blind since birth. No, let me figure out a way to pay more attention, hear more things that maybe some people who just rely on the visual side, they don't hear as quickly. Or you've got people like me who run with headphones. Someone like Mike is really paying a lot more attention with his hearing and it just shows that you could really do anything despite any of the setbacks you have. One thing I do want to get into is just to round out a little bit. Mike, blind since birth, had really supportive parents who were committed to raising him. And it's no surprise, based on Mike's story, that he wants to help other people who are blind and they're coping with it or they're trying to figure out how can I feel included? How can I do all these different things? And I feel like there are a lot of people who have some mission inside of them that they want to do, but they never really do it. And we mentioned this earlier in the interview, but after 9-11, that was a day that really prompted Mike to go all in with his speaking, go all in with helping blind people. So I'm wondering how can we get better at taking action on those types of things, like the life goals, the missions that we could push aside because of work rather than having some day like, and if this was different for you, let me know, some day like 9-11 that really motivates you to take action towards those types of goals. You know, um, I think the best answer I can give is that if each of us learns to step back occasionally and look at our lives, look at the choices that we've made. I can trace how I got where I am today. That is, I can trace how I got to be a speaker and how I got to be to the point where we're starting this new endeavor and so on. And I can go back to being a kid riding a bike. And by the way, I got to tell you uh, in a minute, another story about the bike riding incident. But um, my brother and I went and joined, well, we joined the Cub Scouts and the Boy Scouts, went through scouting. I became an Eagle. Um, and the things that I learned from that, then went to UC Irvine, got a master's degree in physics and did a lot of the same things that other students did, um, things that the administration blessed and some they didn't like sneaking through the steam tunnels to take shortcuts to go places, just like everyone else did. But then um, other things relating to jobs and so on. And I think that we all need to step back sometimes and really look at what we've learned. And 
ask ourselves, what did I learn from that? And, and when we make choices today, I think it's important that at night we we step back and say, was that the right choice? And then when something doesn't work right, the question that we should ask ourselves is, what could I or what should I have done differently? We we tend not to be good at self-analysis. And I learned the value of that uh, when I was a student at UC Irvine because I was also the program director of the radio station. And I instituted a program and said to all the people who were on-air personalities, we're going to tape your shows. We want you to tape your shows. You don't have to tape the music, but we want you to tape your talking and listen to it. And there was, as you can imagine, incredible opposition to that. So we eventually automated it. If the switch that turned on the microphone went live, the recorder started. And we pretty much had to force and embarrass people into listening to what they were saying. But you know what? By the end of the year, the quality of broadcasting at the station had gotten so much better. I know several people who have gone on to actually be in radio and television and, and other things out of that. But it taught me the value of listening. So when I speak, I listen to my speeches because I want to hear what I'm doing and sometimes I'll get new ideas. But I also ask other people, and I think that's important for us to do when we're looking at whatever we're looking at in our lives. We're also often very afraid to get input. And I'm not going to use the word criticism because that tends to be negative. <clears throat> but you know what? Negative criticism, if you will, or negative input is as important as positive input. And they're both important as long as we take it in the right way and recognizing that it all helps us to be better at whatever it is that we're doing. And so I believe that I'm pretty good at stepping back and looking at what I do and, and analyzing my own efforts. And from that, uh, I, I think I can make better choices or um, add on to the choice that I made to make whatever I've decided to do go better than I did before. Listening is certainly one of those valuable skills and it does help you get better. It does help you with analyzing, going back and reflecting. Those are all very essential skills to have for anyone. And when you are in that situation where you have an obstacle, it is always good to take that step back, listen to the outside world, listen to yourself also. So you have a better idea of how to approach that obstacle and really being able to flip it around as well. One of the things I am interested in talking about, I was thinking back to what you said earlier about you were at a job interview and the guy said, well, you're blind. How can you do this? And you're like, well, I got to work, didn't I? So I'm interested in how has the world like gotten better at the inclusion of blind people? And then what are some of our shortcomings? We have certainly improved technology. Uh, soon after personal computers came into existence, people started developing technologies that would verbalize 
the text that came across screens. As computers became more powerful, instead of that technology being a box that maybe had a driver that was loaded onto the computer to drive the speech synthesizer in a box, everything progressed to being on the computer. So now, typically for me to hear what's on the screen, <clears throat> I use a program called a screen reader that verbalizes whatever comes across. Graphics are still not there yet. And I think that that will be a little while in coming, although we're working on it. We being the, the whole world is working on it. In fact, a lot of things that help blind people could help sighted people a whole lot more than they do. Um, we also have developed as a society voice input, speech recognition, although that's not the way I input, I type on a keyboard just like you do because anyone who knows anything about typing, how's that for a generalization? Anyone who knows anything about typing knows that good typists learn to type and never look at the keyboard, just like good pianists learn by touch where they are on the piano keyboard, you don't look at the keys. So being blind and doing that is, is not magic. My wife says I'm not necessarily as good a speller as she thinks that I ought to be, but you know, that's what it, it's always a challenge. But we have developed technology to a good degree to help. Sometimes we still then get into the other part of it, which is what's the problem? The problem still is attitudes. The unemployment rate among employable blind people today is around 65%. And it's not because blind people can't do the jobs, it's because people think blind people can't do the jobs. Many times employers won't provide the screen reader that I need on the job. Sometimes I can provide that, or sometimes their IT people say, we can't allow any outside software to come into our, pro into our offices and into our systems, but the employers won't provide the screen reader access and provide the software. Well, that's a violation of the law, but gee, the more you have to fight, the harder it is to, to be considered valuable on the job. So it is a little bit of a challenge, but the reality is that today the law says people are supposed to make reasonable accommodations for blind people and other persons with disabilities, but for blind people on the job. I mentioned earlier the fact that companies provide electricity for everyone to be able to use electric lights. We put coffee makers in offices, water coolers, any number of different things. Child care, that's a reasonable accommodation, and so many things. Why is there resistance when it comes to considering providing some accommodations for a blind person? The answer still is we are not recognized as a whole yet as being as valuable and as relevant as the rest of society. We're going through a crisis in our society today where we're seeing this whole issue of Black Lives Matters, and I appreciate it. Um, and today, of course, we are in the mourning period for John Lewis, who was a great fighter in the African-American movement. But you know what? He also helped blind people. 
Um, he went to a march where there were close to a thousand people in Atlanta in 2007 and spoke to all those thousands or so of, of blind people. Um, but most of us don't make the leap in recognizing that it doesn't matter what your difference is. If people are excluding you and not valuing you, then it's the same thing. And that's what we haven't gotten through yet. So that's the problem. I mean, you could look at the progress of 20 to 30 years and say, like, we've come far, we have technology, but there is still a distance you have to go. And it's in acknowledging that we may have made progress, but it's not perfect. And we have to solve the issues that are in front of us. That's where we're able to make real progress. And I don't know about you guys listening, you gals listening, but I mean, Mike is a really great example of someone who he's been blind since birth, but he's still doing all these incredible things. Like he's writing books. He's getting interviewed on podcasts. He's speaking all around the world. And it's just amazing to see what he's done. And it also shows that for anyone who's like blind or has a disability or anything like that, you got to include them. And I feel like that is something not easy. It should be easy for people to do but it's not something everyone readily does. So I hope you guys definitely take that to heart. Mike has been such a fantastic guest on the show. I have one more, one more technology example though to give you. Oh, definitely. Here's, and here's, yeah. here's the other side of technology. So computers talk today. The result of that, and it's again showing where blind people don't tend to get to be valued or accepted as, as fully as we should be, is that now educators and other so-called professionals say, well, your computer talks, so you don't need to learn to read Braille, because Braille tends to be, or has tended to be more difficult to produce. It's better now because, again, technology has helped. But the number of blind people who learn to read and write Braille has dropped significantly. The Braille literacy rate in our country today is about 10%, and it shouldn't be 10%. Oh, wow. I didn't think about that. And the reason it's 10% is that people won't emphasize it. There's so many blind people who grow up and then say, I wish that my teachers had taught me Braille. And as I said, today it's a lot easier to produce. But Braille is the only means by which I truly can read and write. You can't learn to read and write from audio on your screen. If that were the case, then why don't we not teach sighted kids to read and write with books and so on? They can watch cartoons and pictures and learn it. But they don't because we emphasize it for sighted kids, but we don't emphasize it for blind kids. By the way, definition of blindness. Blindness doesn't mean that you have no eyesight. The definition I choose to use is a definition that says, if your eyesight has diminished to the point where you have to use alternatives to full eyesight in order to accomplish tasks, then you're blind. And the reason that I use that definition is because, again, a lot of times professionals won't teach those partially blind people 
to use blindness techniques. They won't teach them to use canes. They won't teach them braille. Oh, you've got sight. I've actually seen people say it in, a, in an educational environment, in a classroom. Sally's got some eyesight. She gets to read print. Johnny has no eyesight. He has to read braille. Note the, the wording, gets to mm. and has to. And, and that's the problem. But the reality is <clears throat> that Sally, when she grows up, may read at 15 or 20 and 25 words a minute, was subjected to lots of headaches because her eyesight wasn't all that great and it hurts with the eye strain and everything else. While Johnny, if he's got any kind of a decent braille teacher, will be reading at 300 and 400 words a minute. Sally may or may not lose the rest of her eyesight, but if she doesn't learn those blindness techniques while she has her eyesight, she's got to start all over again at ground zero, and that's not the way it ought to be. So a person is blind if their eyesight has diminished to the point where they need to use alternatives to full eyesight in order to function. And you know, I, I don't know whether, um, I'm sure you're gonna put it up, but if you don't mind, can we go ahead and give people a website? Yes, definitely, I'll put it in. All right, so if, if people want to communicate with me about any of this, they're welcome to do so. Um, website is www.michaelhingson.com. That's M-I-C-H-A-E-L-H-I-N-G-S-O-N.com. Or if they wanna email, they can email to contact at michaelhingson.com. I return emails and, and would be happy to answer any questions that, that people have and um, help in any way that I can. All those links will be in the show notes. Guys, make sure you reach out to Mike. I feel like this has been such an incredible episode. Definitely let us both know if you enjoyed this episode, but I feel like there's just so much in here to grasp. It may be worth a second listen. This has been such a powerful episode. Mike, thank you so much for making the time to come on Breakthrough Success and sharing all of your great insights with us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Love to do it anytime.